You don't know flag. You Don't Know Flat, a podcast full of stories about retro gaming, retro computing, video games, arcade games, and technology from a guy who was there and still is. My name is Rob O'Hara, but for the next 30 minutes, you can call me Flat. Greetings and salutations, listeners, and welcome to episode 223 of You Don't Know Flack. I am your host, Rob Flack O'Hara, and on today's episode, we will be talking about the Big Fun Glossary, something that I presume you have never heard of before. Now, I have written down my notes on my handy-dandy Commodore 64. We are going all the way back to the original old school. I keep my notes on floppy disks, so while I load those notes back in to read. We'll have a little bit of time to discuss some things on this week's loading time. Loading time. Loading time. Loading time. Welcome back, my friends. Uh, it's been a little bit of time since I recorded an episode of You Don't Know Flack. I've had a lot going on. Uh, I took a break from podcasting in December. This is something that I talked to my patrons about. I just needed a break to catch up on some things. Um, I'm going to be shuffling around some of my podcasts. I'm going to be cutting back on a couple of my podcasts. I won't be doing episodes of Like a Doss or Cactus Flax for a little while as I catch up on my uh, bread and butter, if you will, which is You Don't Know Flack and Sprite Castle. Uh, if you haven't been following, uh, I've also been releasing the episodes of Rando Rob that I have recorded over the past couple of years. Rando Rob is a show that I was doing once a week for my patrons, and I have been releasing those both in audio format and in video format. So if you'd like to listen to those, if you subscribe to my main uh, Robcast feed, and you can find the link for that, that is available on iTunes, but uh, the link is listed on my podcast.robohara.com website. Uh, if you subscribe to that, you get all of my podcasts in one single feed. And Randall Rob is a part of that uh, feed. If you just want to hear those by themselves, you can also search for Rando Rob. That's two words, Rando, like random, Rando Rob on iTunes or anywhere else you get your podcasts and you can just get the feed for that. Uh, but the thing about Rando Rob is that it has always been recorded as a video. That is a show where I pick up random things from my collection from around my room and I show those things off. Uh, and talk about where I got them or memories I have associated with them. Uh, so it's kind of a visual show. Uh, that's the way I intended it, although I, I think it works okay uh, in audio format. But if you want to watch those videos, they are all online at YouTube. And my YouTube channel is just Rob O'Hara. So you could go to youtube.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. And there is a playlist called Rando Rob that has every episode I've uploaded of Rando Rob. Now I am still doing new episodes of Rando Rob every Monday, but Tuesday through Friday, I am uploading a new episode, uh, which is actually for me, an old episode from the archives. Um, and I'm up to, 
I'm in the 20s right now uh, of the old episodes, but on the new episodes, I am in the 90s. So uh, I will be doing that for the next several months, uploading one episode every single day. So it's a pretty active audio feed and video feed. If you like listening to me talk about things I've collected over the years, there is a little bit of overlap with You Don't Know Flack. Some of the things that show up on that show uh, are things that I've done podcast episodes about as well, but um, but not, not too much, not too much overlap. So lots and lots of, of fun stories and memories. Uh, so if you, if you've missed hearing from me, Randall Rob is a good way to hear from me right now, every weekday. <laughs> um, you know, I, I took some time off in December and my plan was to regroup in January, um, then we had some things happen with one of our kids, um, you know, teenagers and bad decisions and, and all that stuff is a tale as old as time. So we've been uh, dealing with that. Um, and then in the middle of that experience, uh, my wife had put in for uh, a medical uh, or disability-based retirement based on a condition she has, uh, last June, she applied for that at work and we had not heard any feedback on that at all. And, uh, a couple of weeks ago on a Tuesday, she received a call from management and not even management from HR on Tuesday that said, uh, congratulations, your retirement is going through and your last day is Wednesday. <laughs> your last day is tomorrow. So my wife has worked for the federal government for 28 years. And they basically told her, gave her 24 hours notice <laughs> that her retirement had been accepted and that she needed to go to work and uh, immediately clear out her desk. Um, D, we, we have a D process or a out processing uh, thing that normally takes a couple of weeks to do, but uh, she had a very, very amount, limited amount of time to do that. Um, and also in 24 hours or basically eight hours, uh, an eight hour workday, uh, to brief all of her coworkers on all of her projects. She is, uh, was currently managing several multi-million dollar projects. So she had to brief all these people to get all these documents and plans and information, uh, and, and send them out to people and try to transition, uh, knowledge. And in the middle of this, they turned off her network access and said, I guess that's enough about halfway through the day on Wednesday. So, um, of course, uh, if anybody who knows my wife, uh, when people, people say, Oh, you, uh, you married up or, or my wife is my better half. She is the best half. Um, my wife is, um, uh, uh, one of the nicest and most, uh, thoughtful people on the planet. And so she has, uh, gone above and beyond to make sure all these uh, programs continue to run in her absence. And, um, and, and to the point where other people, you know, beyond what other people, most other people would do, I would say. Um, so that has definitely, uh, been a transition that we are going through right now that now my wife is, uh, retired. Of course, retirement for her means she can work on her other, uh, what has been a side project for her, uh, legs like mine project, 
now she could do that full time. And so retirement for her looks like waking up before me, <laughs> and getting a jump on the day and scheduling meetings uh, with uh, she, she's producing a line of shoes for people that have the same uh, leg disease, lipedema that she has. So that has been um, uh, retirement for her means working more hours than I work and I'm not retired. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, that, that has been, um, but that's a transition. And then, um, uh, she had a place we were renting in Washington, DC because she was traveling to Washington, DC once or twice a month. And, uh, so she and my son went to Washington, DC to empty the place out and also empty out her desk in Washington. Um, and came back and found our cat noodle who, um, has made, not appearances on the podcast, but he definitely has made appearances on Rando Rob, where he has wandered into my room uh, and and announced his presence. He was definitely a a, a loud meower and howler, uh, especially about five in the morning. He liked to come in and do that. <laughs> uh, but um, uh, we, we don't really know what happened to Noodle. Um, Noodle was about five years old. And shortly when he was about a year old, he had um, some seizures and possibly a stroke. Um, and so he has always been kind of a special needs cat. And he, you know, was, had most of his facilities. I mean, he walked around and did all these things, but he had a little bit of a balance problem and moved a little, uh, you know, more slowly than cats uh, around the same age. But it, it appeared that he had uh, another some sort of uh, stroke or seizure and uh, ultimately did not survive this one. So uh, if, if anybody else is ready for a mulligan and to start 2023 over February 1st, that's my goal. I, <laughs> we, we are calling a do over. So I plan on starting everything over uh, starting February 1st. We're just going to write January off um, as a uh, rough experience and, um, and, and call a do over. So, uh, that, that's, uh, my January, uh, in a nutshell. Now, as you know, if you've listened to this show, uh, there is something that I do, which is I take questions from my patrons. Uh, it, I have a couple of different support levels on Patreon. I have a $4 a month and I have a $10 a month uh, and, and for my $10 a month patrons, uh, I allow them to allow them. That sounds like such a King Henry. <laughs> I allow my people. No, uh, is that they can ask me a question and I will answer it on the show. I'll try to work them into the show. And since it's been so long since I've done an episode of you don't know flack, uh, I had one of my patrons, uh, a longtime supporter, Steve Sharippa, uh, who he and his brother have supported this show for many years. And he sent me two questions and normally I would pace these out and spread them out over multiple episodes. But, um, uh, you know what, I'm going to do both of them on one episode and partially because I think the topic, uh, of, uh, about big fun may not be as long as some other ones. Uh, and, um, and both of these are, are great questions and they're, they kind of relate to other episodes and things that I would enjoy, 
discussing and talking about. So Steve sent me two questions. And the first question was, uh, Steve says, I can't remember if you talked about this in your archiving episode, but how did you scan in your photos uh, from the past? And then he says, flatbed? What scan quality? How long did it take? What did you use for editing metadata and such? I'm curious how long it would take to do that for our family pictures. Uh, so, uh, there was an episode I did of, you don't know, flack a few, uh, sometime in 2022 about archiving. And I talked about all the different things that I have archived. I archive, um, videotapes. I've archived cassettes, uh, CDs, I guess, if you want to say that's archiving, uh, and, and lots of, uh, books, you know, things like my yearbooks I've scanned in. I had a book scanner. And uh, one of the things that I, of course, archived is all of our family photos and not just the photos that I personally own, but photos um, like that my parents have. I've borrowed photo albums and, and scanned in all the photos. My knee jerk reaction is to say that most of the things that I've done in archiving, uh, I've done wrong. And this is why I will say that. Um, when I first, uh, when MP3s first came out, I said, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to take all my, uh, CDs and I'm going to convert them to MP3s because that's what everybody did. And not, we didn't have portable MP3 players back then. So it was kind of, kind of weird because, um, CDs were more portable than MP3s back then. I didn't have a, a portable MP3 player. I didn't have a. I didn't have a cell phone. Uh, I didn't have any way to listen to MP3s in my car. They, so the only way I could listen to MP3s at that time was on my actual computer. So uh, it it didn't it didn't give me portability, you know. But it did allow me to to just kind of archive and have a backup copy of a CD, right? So at that time. Uh, there was a big argument about what, uh, how many, uh, kilobytes or kilobits, uh, you know, what, what, uh, uh, speed or and not really speed, but what quality should you use to archive your, um, MP3s? Now, uh, there were many different settings, uh, and they, and they had nicknames. So like 96, uh, K was, it said radio quality. And then 128K, I think is what is the CD quality. And then there was like 192 and 256. And the highest you could get was 320, um, uh, unless you were doing actual wave files. And nobody had the space. Uh, I certainly didn't have the space to do that. You know, um, uh, when MP3s came out, like I had maybe a, a one gig or two gig hard drive, something like that. Maybe it was, no, it was, it, this would have been later than that, but, uh, but not much, not much. Like I might've had a, a two forty meg hard drive. No, gosh, now I'm second guessing myself. Let me do the math here. When I worked at Best Buy in 1995, uh, 94 and 95, that's when I got my first gigabyte hard drive. So that was one gig. And so, you know, if you ripped a CD, that would be 650 meg, you know? I mean, so yeah, I, I did not have, have the space to store multiple CDs, you know, dozens and dozens or a hundred CDs, uh, in ISO or, or wave format. So concessions had to be made. Right. And so the mistake that I made was I, I didn't look forward to the future. 
I looked at the now. So when I started ripping these CDs, like I remember one time I went over to my dad's house. He had gone out of town for the weekend and I took my laptop over there and I went through his whole CD collection (laughs) and I ripped them all to MP3s. And I thought, you know, I don't have a lot of space, so I'm going to rip all these CDs at 96K. Well, 96K now is considered to be pretty terrible. I mean, uh, if this podcast I do in 128K, um, which you know, is borderline too much for a podcast where a a guy talks into a microphone. There's a lot of podcasts that release at 96 K, uh, to save bandwidth and to save space. But you know, 128 K is just, it's not, you know, exorbitant, you know, it's, it's not like some, some big luxury to, to rip your CDs at 128 K. When I do CDs now, I do them at 320 and there is a variable bit rate, which some people like, um, variable bit rate, basically you set a range and it alters the bit rate based on uh, what, uh, it thinks is the best bit rate for the music at that exact second. So it goes up and down. Um, I may be wrong in my assumption, but I always felt like anything that's altering the bit rate up and down like that is taking more CPU cycles. So if you're going to do it on a range of, you know, 256, give or take a little bit, just do it at 256, and then it's just constant. I've also, this is an older uh, problem, but there were older CD players and things that had, uh, or MP3 players that had problems with VBR or variable bitrate MP3s. So I just got into the habit now, when I rip CDs today, I crank it up to 320K, and, I, and that's the highest you could do until you go to these other formats. FLAC is a, uh, ironically, is a popular format that's, it's like a, comp- it's a non-compressed, it's it's not, uh, uh, it's lossless, um, but it's like a wave file, but it's smaller than a wave file. I think, I think they take out the dead space. I think is, is, um, the way it works. I'm not entirely sure, but, um, but those files are, are even pretty big now. So to get back to <laughs> the actual question and the actual problem, when I started scanning in photographs, I did not scan them in for what I might need in the future. I scanned them in for what I thought looked good then. So, for example, if I was putting uh, pictures on a website back then, 640 by 480 would have been gigantic, you know. So, if I'm scanning in photos, I would say, okay, well, 100 DPI is fine, you know. Even 300 DPI seemed like overkill because who would ever need a photograph that would be this large, so I had a lot of scans of, of photos and they looked okay on the screen, but what happened? Uh, resolution got better. Our monitors got better. Our monitors now, I mean, you know, it, it doesn't seem like that long ago where, uh, you know, I was impressed because, Hey, this is super VGA 800 by 600. That's fantastic. Well, right now I'm looking at a computer set up with three monitors that I, because there's three, I had to turn the resolution down and they're all 1920 by 1080. So I'm looking at three HD monitors hooked up to, uh, this laptop, right? So, um, so I guess this, so this is what I would say. First of all, when I scanned all my pictures in, I was not thinking about the future. And here's another thing. 
when you scan in pictures, things that look okay on your screen may not look as good if you ever want to print them out. So we did uh, for Christmas a couple of years ago. I think the company's called Canvas. I could be wrong. Uh, but it's the, the company that they have commercials and basically you can have a photo printed on glass. Uh, and so I, I had a picture of, of uh, my wife and myself on vacation and I had that done and I looked for some older like wedding pictures that I had scanned that weren't very good resolution. And when I looked at them blown up, they did not look good. So I have, uh, so <laughs> Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself here. So I, I did select a different picture that, that did look good. And then uh, the cat knocked it off, and, and now the corners broke off of that. <laughs> um, so I had a series of flatbed scanners. Uh, I had one that I used at Best Buy, uh, and I dragged my computer to work, and I used uh, this this scanner to scan in pictures. They allowed me to do that. Uh, then I had a cheap scanner. Then I had a couple other scanners. Um, so, but it, but it's always been a flatbed scanner is what I've done uh, with my pictures. But uh, if I were doing them today, and I am doing them today, uh, it brings me to a good point here, is that I recently purchased recently within the past week uh, a book scanner. Now this is um, an old school style. It's a flatbed scanner. And uh, it's a uh, an Optibook. It's uh, Plus Tech, and I had one before, and it died. Uh, but it worked great. And and the the design, the way it's designed, is it's like a normal flatbed scanner, except for the glass on the front side, the side closest to you, comes all the way up to the edge where the plastic is. So you could scan books, and when you set them on the edge, the front side, it's a very, very thin piece of plastic, so you can the scanner comes all the way to the spine of the book. That's kind of the selling point. Now, I have scanned in books in the past, and this thing has three options. It has 150 DPI, 300 DPI, and 600 DPI. Now, in the past, I think I did 150, which looks okay when you're going into reading stuff. But I have gone in to um, grab screenshots of those like I did my yearbooks. And then you want to go grab a picture of somebody from the yearbook, and the quality is not that great. I mean, it looks good if you're reading the you know, a PDF version of your yearbook and you, and you're just reading it. It looks fine, but, but those pictures aren't um, that great. And, and really the thing in archiving is you can always make things smaller, but you can't make them bigger, you know, so you can't take that picture and blow it up and keep the detail later, but you can always take a big scan and make it smaller and keep the original. Right. So, I mean, that would be, if I were giving advice, on scanning in pictures, I would say scan them in as big as your scanner will do. Um, and then, you know, there are tools, um, there are scripts you can run or things where you could, it'll say like, take all my pictures and, and cut the resolution by one fourth, like make it half as tall and half as wide. And you could do a batch. You could do an entire directory or, or, you know, a giant folder of, of photos and make copies of those. Right. So you could, t you could keep the original somewhere and these giant resolutions, uh, which would be good for, for printing or, or preserving and stuff. But the ones that you post on the web, you could use, you know, these smaller versions. So, uh, that, that would really be my advice is to do the, the best quality, whatever you're going to archive, do the best quality 
that you can. When I do um, VHS stuff, I mean, there, there's a, a, a certain limit that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to try to capture VHS in 1080p because there's not that much data there. I think VHS is like 240 lines, something like that of resolution. Um, but, but I wouldn't do less than that, right? Like I, I want to do the maximum. And so that's, you know, for CDs, um, and, and what has happened in my life is I have ended up doing these things multiple times. So that's what happened when I did all those CDs at 96 K it was good for a while. And then when I got better speakers and I got a bigger hard drive, all those albums that were 96 K, they all sounded like garbage. And I ended up re ripping them at, I think 192 K. And I decided in my head, 192 was good enough, you know? Well, now I do it at 320 K. So I've gone back and done those a third time. And so it's just wasted effort to go back and do them. I should have just done it. Uh, and, and there, like, again, there were technical reasons why I didn't, I didn't have a hard drive space to store CDs at that quality, uh, at that time. Uh, we've, we've gone through the same thing with archiving movies and DVDs. I mean, we, the original DVD rips were such low quality and now as things have got better and better, we end up re-ripping the same movies. Um, and, and I got to tell you, we're, we're kind of at the same place right now in, in time when it comes to Blu-rays, because like I've taken some of my Blu-ray movies to put them on the Plex server and then I don't have to go dig the, the Blu-ray out of the closet if I want to watch it. But when I do those, um, I do end up compressing, you know, the video down to a, a, a lower resolution. I don't, I, I compress the audio. So it's not as good as the original. And someday when hard drives are super giganto, <laughs> And I have room to put uncompressed Blu-rays and store them that way. I'll probably end up doing it again. It's always this battle of time versus space versus money, right? Uh, but anyway, that that would be my first advice. Uh, when you talked about what quality, I would say as best quality as you can. Now, the second part, um, you talked about metadata and asked about metadata. And um, when I was originally scanning in my photos, uh, I don't think there was an easy way to edit the metadata of photos. And so I used to have, and I still do have this folder, even though I don't use it that much anymore. Uh, but I had a folder called miscellaneous. Uh, so, uh, first of all, I have a, a parent folder called digital, and that is all my digital pictures under digital. Uh, I have hundreds of folders now, but, um, originally I only had just a couple and one was like, cars and one was, uh, you know, people and one was miscellaneous and that did not work because it, I, I could tell you, tell you right now, uh, scanning in photos is only half the battle. The other half, the battle is being able to find them. And if you've never gone through this, I've had this happen multiple times in my life. Uh, I've had someone, uh, you know, either in the family or, or a friend or something like that, have someone pass away. And then, the, and then this email goes out and people say, gosh, do you have any pictures we can use, uh, for the funeral service that my mother-in-law's friend who used to come to our Christmas parties, uh, passed away a, a decade ago and this happened. And so I knew she had come to, some of our Christmases. I knew she had come to some of our Thanksgivings. Uh, and so 
I then had to spend two days going through all those pictures trying to find ones that had this person in the photos. Now, I haven't completely solved that problem, but I will tell you what, what I did with my photos. It doesn't work for everybody. Um, but my photos, what I found that the easiest thing to do is uh, be very descriptive with your folders. And so I have folders and subfolders. So, for example, I have a folder called Cruises. And under that folder, I have uh, different folders for each cruise that we've gone on. Uh, so there's the Alaska cruise, the Hawaii cruise. Um, and I always put the date. And I always put the date in uh, the, the same format, which is year dash month dash date uh, day, right? So if it says Cozumel cruise, and then it might say 2000, you know, in parentheses, 2000 dash oh five dash 20 or something like that. If I don't know the date, then I'll leave the date off and it'll just say like 2000 dash oh five. So I know it's May, May 2000, right? Um, and then if we go on vacation and I take a hundred thousand photos, uh, I will break those down when we get back into like different things we did on vacation. Like, Hey, we went here, we did this, we did that. And I'll put those in folders inside those folders. And what that allows me to do is let's say I want uh, a photo of, uh, us, like someone says, Hey, do you have a photo of when we went to that museum in Chicago when we took the kids to Chicago? Okay. So I have a folder called Chicago. And then when I go to that folder, it has all of our trips when we went to Chicago listed by date. And so now I have to kind of figure out, Hey, what year was that? Or when did we go? Right. And then I could go to that folder and inside that folder, either I will have another folder that says, Hey, this is the museum trip, or I use windows thumbnails and blow them up. And then I can start scrolling through and find, so I can narrow down pretty quickly, um, where, photos are going to be. Now I kind of rely on photo dates, uh, in the file name. So when I sync photos over from my phone, they have a, a date that's in that same format. It'll have year, day, date, and then time. And they're listed in chronological order. So I hate to rename them sometimes because, uh, then they'll get out of order, right? So sometimes what I'll do is I'll, leave the date, uh, the, the date tag that's in the file name. And then at the end of that, I'll put a hyphen and then I'll put people's names that are in the photo or what's going on, you know, me and, and Mason on the train, me or, you know, and Morgan doing this or whatever. Uh, so I, I do visually rely more on finding photos than looking at the file names, but, but the folder names are what are going to get me close. Now I, uh, actually wrote a batch file called search and there are better ways to do this than what I've done, but I, uh, do a, a dump basically of all my, that whole folder structure to a text file. And, and this is a batch file that basically runs grep and it does some other things. Um, but I could search. So if I want to find uh, the picture of Cozumel, I can open up a DOS prompt to type search space Cozumel, and it will tell me all the folders that have Cozumel pictures in them. Uh, and then based off that, I can, I could kind of dig down. So uh, there are some programs out there that will do, um, you know, let you edit the, the metadata. And if I were scanning in photos today, 
I would take time at the end of each session, like if I scanned in 10 pictures today or 20 or 100, and then I would take a break and tomorrow I would put metadata in all those photos. Um, it could be used by other applications. It could be used, um, you know, it's really, really handy. You could search that information. So if I were going to do that, if I were starting today, that's what I would do. The problem is my digital photo folder uh, has like 100,000 files in it now. So I don't have it in me to go in and edit 100,000 files at this point. So I've kind of got to stick with the the organization system that I, I started with and, and is still working. Now, I will say this, uh, and, and I want to add this to the very end. Um, to me, the single most important thing on my computer, my server, anything, is that digital photo folder, like the most single. If I lost all my MP3s, I can find MP3s again. If I lost all my movies, I could lose all that. Even if I lost my books, there are physical copies of my books out there. It would not be the end of the world. Um, if I lost all my digital photos, I, I would be despondent. That would be a, um, an understatement. I don't know what I would do. Um, and so without, you know, explaining everything, just know this, there's a copy of my digital photos that goes to the cloud. There is a second copy, uh, here at my house, and then there's a copy that goes to a USB drive, and there's a copy of that USB drive, a second USB drive that I keep at work. Um, and the ones that leave my house are encrypted so that if that drive ever disappeared, nobody could get to all that stuff. I have to, you know, use a, a BitLocker and, and encryption keys to decrypt that before I can run those backups. But, um, but the gist of it is this. If you're going to take the time to store, to scan in all these family photos and do all that, then please uh, take the, the extra step and, and back that stuff up. Uh, treat it like you know it is the only copy of your actual photos. Um, you're putting your time into that. You're putting uh, all this, this effort into that. Um, and so, uh, um, you know, treat it as such. Make sure that that, that stuff is, is backed up uh, and that you can get to it someday. I talked way too long on that question. And so uh, Steve had a second question. Steve's second question is, he says, I'm listening to old episodes of You Don't Know Flack. Uh, do you have a Star Wars figures or do you have Star Wars figures that you are still looking for? Do you have a link to the list? Not sure if you're still trying to complete your set. Well, um, so this is probably, I, I know I did an episode a long time ago about Star Wars and Steve is probably listening to that. And this question came from, from there. So, um, so going back in time, if you recall, there were the uh, original, and this is we're talking about the the seventies here and seventies to eighties. The the original Kenner uh, line of action figures uh, really went from nineteen seventy eight through nineteen eighty five. Now the first twelve figures uh, came on cards, and the back of those cards had the original 12 figures. There were like seven or eight good guys. Um, let's see. There's Luke, Leia, Han Solo, Chewie, Obi-Wan. That's five. R2-D2, C-3PO, seven. So I think there's seven Yeah, seven good guys. Uh, three bad guys, Darth Vader, Stormtrooper, and Death Squad Commander. And then there were two 
I don't know if you would call them – they're not good guys or bad guys. They are um, uh, uh, residents of Tatooine. You had the Jawa and you had uh, the uh, – it was originally called Sand People. Now we call them Tusken Raiders. Um, but that was the original 12. And so those figures came on cards and um, those cards are referred to as – the original release were referred to as 12-backs because on the back of the card, there's only those 12 figures. Now – uh, the next wave, there was another, I think, I think the next wave is like 19 backs. And so you had the original 12 plus a few more figures and, and that kept building and building. Right. But, um, uh, so return of the Jedi came out in 1983 and there was a big push for return of the Jedi figures. And of course we got, you know, Luke in his all black, uh, outfit. Like when he went to go visit Jabba the Hutt and we got, um, uh, you know, the characters as they, as they appeared in, in Return of the Jedi, right? And of course, and, you know, you get Admiral Akbar, you get Niam Noom, and, uh, all these people, right? Uh, but that's an 83. And then you've got 1984. Now, Return of the Jedi is a year old, and you're still getting these figures. But at the very end of the line of, uh, Kenner action figures, uh, were what they call the last 15 for obvious reasons. Uh, now these 15 are known as 92 back cards. So there are 92 figures, um, more or less in all. And the last 15 have all 92 figures on the back. Now, Kenner was known for scraping the bottom of the barrel. I mean, it, I guess it partly Kenner, partly, uh, George Lucas and, and Lucasfilm, but, uh, you know, they were making a lot of money on these toys. And every time they put out a toy, kids would go buy it. Kids always had to have action figures. And it didn't matter if you had Luke Skywalker on, on Tatooine, cause you're going to buy Luke Skywalker in his X-Wing pilot <laughs> and you're going to buy Luke Skywalker in his Dagobah outfit. And you're going to buy, you know, keep buying Luke Skywalker and all these different outfits and Han Solo, which is hard because he just changed the color of his pants or gave him a different jacket or something, you know. Um, and so um, these last 15, when they got down to that, they were scraping the bottom of the barrel. Some of the last 15 include uh, Yak Face and Amana Man. Uh, if you don't know who Amana Man is, he uh, is this very flat-looking, tall alien. He appears in Jabba's palace uh, for about, I think, total screen time is probably less than two seconds. Uh, maybe maybe slightly longer, but but that's not an exaggeration. And he looks like a, uh, uh, a moldy piece of bacon. <laughs> uh, there's Imperial Dignitary, who are these purple guys that appeared in, in one shot. Uh, you got the ever popular A-Wing pilot. Uh, and then you have the popular Ewoks, Romba and Warrock. Um, so they'd already done, you know, Chief Chirpa and, um, what was it? Low Gray, the Medicine Man. And, and, uh, uh, so they'd already done all the popular Ewoks. So they added a couple more Ewoks. Um, now there were some actual characters you've heard of. There was, uh, Anakin Skywalker was part of the last 15, um, you had Luke in the stormtrooper armor. That was one of the last 15. 
Um, and so, so on and so forth. So, uh, there was R2D2 with the pop-up lightsaber. That was one of the last 15 R2D2 as he appeared on Java's skiff when he shot the lightsaber up, uh, for loot to catch. So it was a, uh, a retooling of R2D2 with a, a compartment in his head that would hold a lightsaber. Now, um, also these figures came with collectible coins. And so, uh, so you have multiple ways to collect these last 15 figures, right? Uh, you can have the character, the figure by itself. You can have the figure and the coin, or you could have it on the card. So you have the figure, the, the coin and the card itself. Now I was pretty much done playing with Star Wars stuff by 1985. I mean, by 1984, you know, I'd kind of switched my interests from, uh, you know, Star Wars was, was kid stuff and I love Star Wars, but I wasn't getting the toys anymore, you know, and by 1980, I mean, by 1985, I had a go-kart, you know, and, and, um, uh, you know, and, and, and a computer, I was getting computer games and all these things. So it just wasn't, um, wasn't that much into Star Wars toys. And plus, these are new figures that a are not like nobody was dying for a yak face figure. Um, and not even if you were, you wouldn't get it two years after return of the Jedi came out. Right. So, so the, the thing about these figures is that they didn't sell very well, which makes them more rare, which makes them more expensive. So I looked up on eBay just now and uh, there was a a man a man figure again. This is the guy that looks like Green Bacon, uh, and uh, and these are prices that they sold at, not not list prices, but prices from auctions that actually the figures actually sold. There was a loose copy of a man a man or a loose uh, figure of a man a man that just sold a couple of days ago for four hundred and ten dollars. Now. A man, a man, and yak face. The problem is these are so expensive that collectors, or um, uh, more importantly, people that like to capitalize on collectors, have made bootleg versions of these figures. So they're either—I'm not sure if they're 3D printing them or if they're just molding them. Sometimes you'll see them, and they say uh, they don't move, so they're just designed to put on a shelf, and they look like the originals, but they're not actually the original figures. Uh, there was a twofer auction that just sold, and it says reproduction, a man, a man, and yak face for $77. Again, those are not actual action figures. They're just like molds that someone has made of the action figures and then painted them. So they look like the action figure. Again, if you just want to put it on a shelf, I suppose it would pass, but you would definitely know that they're not um, actual figures. Um, I looked for the, uh, Imperial dignitary and there was one with, um, uh, no coin. So this is just the figure by itself. Uh, the last two that sold went for 125 and 170. And then there was one that had the figure and the coin. And I think it may have had the card, um, for about 280. So where do I stand on these figures? Uh, I actually have a couple of the last, uh, 15, uh, maybe two or three, I think, but that was kind of where my original collection stopped. And definitely that's where my uh, adult collecting stops. Um, you know, I liked buying star Wars figures when you could go to the thrift store or, uh, an antique mall and I would run across them and I would find them for 10 bucks or something like that. Uh, but there's just no way that I'm spending hundreds of dollars on figures, uh, to put on a shelf. Now, if you've watched 
any of my Wednesday night video game streams, you'll know that uh, I have an entire, uh, you know, I have the, the Billy bookcases from Ikea. I have seven of them in this room that are filled floor to ceiling with toys and collectibles. And I have at least 20 uh, 30 gallon tubs out in my garage of toys and collectibles and things that I don't have room to put in this room on display. So, uh, yeah, it just doesn't make sense for me to spend hundreds of dollars on one action figure to put in a sea of action figures. It just, it just doesn't make sense. So that's, uh, I don't have an actual list of the figures that I know that I don't have. Uh, and I might do that someday. I might go through and make an inventory or something. But um, but the reality is that I will never own those figures. Uh, you know, maybe someday somebody would say, hey, here's all my old Star Wars stuff, and I don't want it, and you can have it, and you can put it on your shelf. Well, then I would have them. Um, but I, I don't think that I would ever buy uh, a replica of a figure and I don't see myself spending hundreds of dollars on action figures. So that's, that's kind of where the collection sits. Uh, thank you so much, Steve, for your questions. I love getting the questions. I love answering them. And obviously if you've made it to this point in the podcast, you know that I love talking. <laughs> Uh, if you have feedback about this or any episode of the show, you can email me directly at Rob O'Hara at RobOHara.com. You can join the conversation on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash Robcasts. Follow me on Twitter at Commodore. Come chat with me on the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord or leave a message on my podcast hotline, which is very lonely and is at 405-486-YDKF. If you'd like to support my shows, uh, visit my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. All my patrons get access to behind the scenes blog posts. And by the way, let me stop you there. They probably are getting too many blog posts. They're getting more blog posts than they could ever want. I've probably posted 20 posts in the last month. So um, it has almost replaced my regular blog at RobOHara.com. So if you like reading my posts or what's going on in my life, uh, that is, Patreon is really the place where you're going to get that information. Um, you're also going to get access to the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server and other additional perks. To find out more, visit my page. Again, that is patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. Uh, believe it or not, as slow as the Commodore disk drive is, it loaded my notes a half an hour ago. <laughs> and so let's get talking about this show's episode, which is the Big Fun Glossary. We live in a world where it is difficult to disconnect. People take vacations in faraway places so that they'll have an excuse to disconnect. I hear people say all the time, I would love to take a cruise. And the first thing they say is not, I'm looking forward to going to a new destination or seeing something. The first thing they say is, I'm so excited that I'll get to turn my cell phone off for a few days and not have to answer the phone. We are constantly connected to the internet. We are constantly connected to each other. My children have to deal with things like cyberbullying and threats of having their texts leaked or shared private pictures that they've sent to people, having those things posted online. Uh, it's a really different time 
than the era that I grew up in. You know, I grew up in the era of BBSs. And so no matter what happened on a BBS, when I would dial up at night and we would fight or we would make plans or we would share games, whatever it is that we did at the end of the night, when that computer got turned off, that world went away. And then I went to school and I was with all my friends. And after school, I would go skateboarding or ride my bike or play in the creek or do any of those things. And when I was doing that, I was never worried about what was happening in that online world because I wasn't there. It was just a really different time. And the early days of the internet were kind of the same way. Back when the internet was new, uh, I wasn't connected to the internet all the time. I had to dial up to connect the internet. In fact, my ISP would kick me off every four hours because they had a limited number of phone lines to connect to. And if people tied up the phone line for too long, they would kick you off so that other people could dial in and access the internet. So, I originally got on the internet around 1994, not around 1994. I got in in the fall of 1994. This was, I did not, uh, was not exposed to the World Wide web at that point. That didn't happen for me until 1995. Uh, so in 1994, I was doing text only internet. I was looking at news groups. I was using FTP to connect to uh, file servers and download files. Um, I actually at Best Buy bought a copy, a physical hardback book, or not hardback, but a physical book called the Internet Yellow Pages that would have listings. And you could look up things like, hey, here's interesting law documents. And you would go to an FTP site and download law documents that you could read. Um, so it was a really kind of different time. And what I would say the most about this is that even as I began to discover the World Wide Web and bridge this gap from text only uh, into a graphical version of the Internet, it wasn't the Internet that we know today. It was very, very far cry uh, from the Internet that we know today, mostly because it was designed for dial-up users. And so we didn't have the level of multimedia that we see today. Uh, the the concept of going to a website and having video automatically play was uh, unheard of. At most, you might get the MIDI background music on a website. Um, but I mostly remember, even though it was graphical, just being fed static things. Uh, so like, I remember I found a website that was dedicated to 1980s cartoons. And then there was just a list of files. There were things you could download. You could download MIDI versions of 1980s cartoon themes. You could download, um, GIFs of, of cartoon characters, or even you might see fan fiction or some story or, or an FAQ about a comic book character or about a show. Um, but it wasn't really interactive in the same way that the internet is today. So I, I want to set that time period in your mind. You know, I want it of this, this internet that is not really taking advantage of all the things that the internet would eventually offer us. It was basically 
very static pages uh, of information that you could access. Now, uh, I would go to places like, uh, you know, even before, this is long before Google, even before Alta Vista, like you would go to Yahoo and find web pages. Now, Yahoo was not a search engine as we know search engines today. Uh, a search engine today, uh, I think of, you know, scripts and bots that go out and basically scan the web for new websites. Like I don't, every time I post a blog post, I don't go to Google and submit the blog post. Google finds those posts and archives them. Um, but Yahoo, I don't know if people know this, but Yahoo was manually maintained. Yahoo was, uh, if you wanted your website added to Yahoo, you had to email them and say, Hey, here's my website and here's what category to put it in. And somebody would review your email. And if they approve, they would add <laughs> your website, uh, to Yahoo. They would add a link. So it was very manual, you know? Um, but sometime around that era, I found a link to what was called the big fun glossary. Now, before I tell you about the Big Fun Glossary, I kind of have to tell you what Big Fun was. And I should put a disclaimer here that says everything from this point forward is what I have read online. I have no personal connection to Big Fun uh, or to the people that lived at Big Fun. But this is a website that I discovered and have been off and on uh, enthralled with over the past 25 years now, I suppose. Uh, so the story of big fun begins with three young ladies that are referred to as the Malvern girls. Uh, now this was a suburb of Philadelphia and the Malvern girls consisted of Sarah Poiron, Jessica Flint and Peggy Farley. Now, it feels odd and awkward for me to mention people's full names, especially strangers' full names that are not necessarily uh, celebrities and are not people that maybe don't want to be associated with Big Fun. But the reality is that the Big Fun website has lots of information on people that lived at Big Fun, including their first and last names. In some cases, it has their email addresses. And I should say that everyone that lived at Big Fun uh, were real people, and these are their real names. You can look these people up. They are still on Facebook. They are still out there in the world. And so I don't uh, know that they are all a part of that willingly, but we'll we'll get to that. So you had the Malvern girls that lived in Philadelphia, and they decided they wanted to get out of Philadelphia. Now, I believe that they were all over the age of 18, but I think they were all under the age of 21. So they were all 19 or 20 years old. Uh, they had some friends in Philadelphia. One was a young man named Josh Smith. The other one was Zachary Ferkley. And so the five of these people put their money together and found this house this house was out uh, in the middle of the forest. It was outside of uh, Scottsville, Virginia. Uh, again, the Malvern girls were around uh, the Charlotte, Charlottesville uh, area. Uh, and they found this farmhouse 
uh, I believe just north of Scottsville, it says. And they decided to rent this farmhouse and all of them move into it. And as the story goes, someone answered the phone or used to answer the phone and say, big fun. And so that was how the house got its name. And the house and the entire story became known as Big Fun. Now, these five people uh, did not live at Big Fun uh, in a bubble. They all had friends, and their friends would come to visit Big Fun. Uh, and sometimes their friends would come to visit Big Fun. And sometimes these people left, and sometimes these people didn't leave. <laughs> so in my mind, uh, this looks a lot like the early episodes of the real real world, except for this isn't for television. Uh, this was actually real life. There were a couple other characters named uh, uh, fellows named Matthew Hart and Morgan Anarchy who show up in the middle of big fun. Um, but there's one person that's key to big fun, and that is Gus, a.k.a. The Gus. And the Gus was slightly older than most of the other people at Big Fun. Uh, the Gus was not originally from the Charlottesville, Virginia area. He was from Ohio, but was traveling uh, to Charlottesville uh, for work and had met the Malvern girls and heard about Big Fun. And so the Gus began traveling to big fun and hanging out there over the weekend, uh, over the weekend and then returning back home to Ohio until, uh, I believe later in, in, and when you say later, it's a relative term because big fun did not last that long. Uh, but at some points he stayed there, uh, eventually to the point where he did move to the area and, and did stay at big fun. Now, you might be wondering what kinds of people would want to move into a farmhouse out in the middle of nowhere and live together. Uh, for the most part, these were artistic people. They were creative people. And I believe and this is my own phrase, but they were unique people who attracted other unique people. So, you can't, they, they weren't all the same. And in fact, they were, a lot of them were um, like diametrically opposed. Like there were, you know, people that were into punk rock and people that were into art and people um, that were into all sorts of things. And all of them, it appears, were into drugs. So drugs play a big part in the history of big fun. Uh, there are stories of them in the beginning. It's pretty innocent. There's a lot of wine drinking, uh, but also there is this thing where everyone apparently at big fun enjoyed drinking uh, Robotussin, which they just call Tussin. Uh, and Tussin is actually used as a verb, like they will be Tussing tonight. So this was a time where you could buy Robotussin uh, or other cough medicine that had the same uh, drug inside it over the counter. So that was a recreational <laughs> drug of choice uh, was cough syrup. Um, but as time went on, uh, the drugs got harder. There's a lot of talk about LSD and mushrooms and um, uh, all sorts of drugs that were being consumed at Big Fun. 
There's also a lot of talk about sex at Big Fun. I think originally the original setup was fairly plutonic, but if you put enough boys and girls in a house uh, and add enough wine and apparently Robitussin <laughs> to the mix, um, people are going to hook up. And so some of these hookups, it doesn't seem like any of the hookups made lasting relationships, uh, but there were, they kind of led to alliances. Uh, and so I, there's no way that I could tell you everything that happened at Big Fun, but um, but this is the gist of Big Fun. Big Fun is a, a farmhouse uh, that was uh, moved into in the uh, sometime in the fall, I believe, of uh, this. Uh, so, well, I, I'm not sure if it was a fall. I'm not sure what time of year, but in 1995, uh, all these people moved into Big Fun. So let's get back to the Gus. Um, the Gus is almost like the character through which we can view big fun. It's almost like the point of view character. And there's a reason for that, uh, because the Gus was kind of this outsider that joined big fun. He's a little bit out of their social circle. He's a little bit older. He's not from the area. And he, so his point of view is a person that's witnessing what's happening at big fun, but, um, but then he leaves, you know, uh, he, he goes to big fun for the weekend. He watches what happens and then he leaves. So he's, he's coming and going to this world. And one of the things that the Gus decides to do is create a glossary. And this glossary begins with words and, uh, that, or phrases that are kind of inside jokes, uh, maybe not jokes, but words that are used at the house, phrases that are used, um, things that might not make sense to anyone else. Some of them are, are very common. Some of them are phrases, again, um, I'm trying to think of an example, like, like things that were written on the wall or things that someone said at a party that they thought was funny and that it got written down. Uh, and added to the glossary. And the Gus, this was a physical notebook that the Gus started adding all these entries to. And eventually, this became known as the Big Fun Glossary. Um, now, originally, it started with, like I said, words, phrases uh, used by the people who lived in Big Fun. But then he began adding uh, the people who stayed at Big Fun. So they had their own entries. Also, words or concepts that were important to the Gus also got entries. So, for example, in the Big Fun glossary, there's an entry for the word love. And it will talk about um, different people who say that they're in love or not in love and kind of the Gus's views of love um, consciousness is one that has an entry uh, for some reason. But again, all the people like all the Malvern girls like Jessica and Sarah and Peggy, they all have their own entries in the glossary. And then there are things that were important at the time, like um, 
the people at Big Fun were very big on zodiac signs. They put a lot of uh, stock in people's zodiac symbols, and so all the zodiac signs have their own entries uh, with, with um, information in them. So again, uh, the original version of the Big Fun glossary was in this giant notebook and assembled by the Gus. Uh, you had this huge, ter- you know, list of of words and terms, and it was constantly being added to. I think it says in the Big Fun glossary that it started with a uh, hundred and fifty entries, but it definitely grew over time. Now, the Gus wanted other people to read the glossary. And so they had some connection at a local college uh, in Charlottesville, and they would go to the college and make copies on the copier for free of the big fun glossary, and they would leave copies around. Like they left a copy at the local coffee shop, um, or they would give copies to different friends. And I'm sure there were many copies floating around big fun. People would add their own notes or, you know, write things and that would eventually get back to the Gus. And then he would, uh, go back and revise, uh, the glossary some more. Now, big fun, uh, ended the house ended in the summer of 1996. And you can read all about this in the big fun glossary, but it kind of came to an unceremoniously, uh, Awful end, I would say, uh, and and I'm think I've got most of the story right because I'm I'm kind of going by memory, but uh, the gist of it was that the winter of 1995 and early 1996 was very cold, and so they brought in electric heaters to try to heat the house, but the house was not really meant for these types of temperatures, and the house was barely livable in the first place. So I think they experienced frozen water pipes. Um, The house had damage. And with these electrical heaters, they also ran up very large electrical bills that the inhabitants of Big Fun were not able to pay. So this led to them getting behind on their bills in the spring of 1996, uh, which eventually led to the electricity and all utilities being turned off at big fun. Um, now there are some fun stories in the glossary about how they turned the electricity back on, uh, how they bypassed the power meter at, uh, some point <laughs> and the power company came out and actually disconnected the pole, uh, service to the pole, which cut off all electricity, uh, to big fun. And, uh, eventually it became this house where there was no running water, which meant the toilets no longer flushed, uh, there's no electricity, which means there's no, uh, heat, there's no air conditioning and it became a pretty miserable place to live. And eventually people left a uh, big fun. I think a couple of the Malvern girls, uh, held out to the very end, uh, to the summer. But by the time that it was, uh, just unbearably hot that they had to, uh, also give up the, uh, give up the dream. That was Big Fun. So I believe the official end of Big Fun was the summer of 1996. And so the Gus, who had worked on the glossary for several months at that point, froze the glossary at 1996, uh, June 1996 as well. So 
he refused to make any changes or updates to the glossary at that point. It was frozen in time and it completely encapsulated the era of big fun. Now, the Gus had a friend, another uh, cohabitant of big fun who happened to get a job at the comet, uh, which was an ISP at that time. And he said, Hey, we should put a co- uh, a copy of the big fun glossary online. And uh, more to that uh, f- effect uh, was that the Gus got a job at the Comet ISP. I believe he worked overnights, it said. And so he would just monitor servers or whatever he was doing overnight, monitoring systems, but he had a lot of free time. And so not only did he decide that he wanted to put the Big Fun Glossary online, but he wanted to turn it into this HTML document. And so this is really the birth of the Big Fun Glossary as we know it. Um, I've never seen a copy of the actual paper version of the Big Fun Glossary, but uh, the Big Fun Glossary, the paper version, was converted into this HTML website. Now, just like how the glossary was frozen in the summer of 1996, the Big Fun Glossary is also frozen in time. If you go to the website and look at the Big Fun Glossary, it looks very, very dated. Uh, the There's a repeating graphic in the background that really works best on the width if you change the width of your browser to about 800 pixels, which would have been probably... Uh, about average at the time when this was published. Uh, There are things, there are references, like there are a a couple of WAV files that you can listen to, and it has references like, you know, only download this if you have a fast connection, and they're like 20K (laughs) or something. They're like unbelievably small. The graphics... Uh, the pictures that are included and the drawings that are included are all unfortunately very, very small. Sometimes they're only, you know, 150 or 200 pixels wide because that was the reality of the web when the big phone glossary uh, was, was put online. Now I talked about all the different kinds of entries that are in there. So one of the first entries, if you click on uh, the Malvern girls, you'll be led to, uh, and, and, and I should say that the, the, the page itself is, it's almost, I mean, it is a glossary. So all the entries are alphabetical. They're not chronological. Everything is listed alphabetically. And then on a split up on, on multiple pages, just to make it easier uh, to digest. But for example, here is the first paragraph of the entry on Jessica Flint. Uh, her entry is titled Jessica Flint of Malvernia. This Malvern girl decided to leave the suburban hell and tired associations of Malvern to begin anew in the town where her childhood friend, Jenny Simon was living. That town was Charlottesville. Existing largely as a waif between a variety of evictions, Jessica still managed to develop a strong web of social connections in the Charlottesville area. 
Her ability to forge connections is related to her considerable charm and angelic sex appeal, which she skillfully manipulates, especially vis-a-vis new male acquaintances. Almost all boys fall in love with her immediately and deceive themselves into thinking they are going somewhere with her. Uh, or going somewhere with her. Uh, only later do they discover what fools they have made of themselves. Matthew Hart and the Gus enjoy watching new guys wreck their ships on Jessica's rocky shores, baited, hooked, but never really free by the sheer strength of her eyes. There's much more in Jessica's entry, but this is what I, the reason why I read that uh, is because if we go back and look at this entry, it begins with Jessica Flint of Malvernia. Then it says this Malvern girl, but Malvern girl is an is a clickable HTML link. If you click Malvern girl, it will jump to a different part of the glossary for the entry for Malvern girl, uh, which has a different definition. It explains who the Malvern girls are, and of course has links to the three Malvern girls and and you know the history of how they they became friends and got together. Um, I'm skimming through this first paragraph. It says, uh, she was tired of her association with Malvern. Malvern is also a clickable link. You can click on that. It will tell you a little bit about Malvern. Um, it says the town was Charlottesville. Charlottesville is an HTML link that you could click that will jump to, uh, another part of, uh, uh, of the document. The Gus and Matthew Hart are both clickable links that will take you to their entries. Um, but also the word love is a clickable link that will take you to, um, an entry on love that the Gus has written. So, at the bottom, first of all, I should say at the bottom of the glossary, it does say that the glossary is uh, nonfiction except for where the Gus has added. Uh, <laughs> uh, I wouldn't say that it's like entries like this are nonfiction, but they are definitely um, not cut and dry like a normal glossary. You know, when he talks about guys wrecking their ships on Jessica's rocky shores, you know, so it's, it's definitely there's a, a dramatic flair uh, to some of these. And the Gus freely admits that some entries, for example, this entry, uh, there was a time where the Gus and Jessica Flint were apparently a couple, and then they were not a couple. And there's an entry uh, that you can find if you do enough clicking that talks about the time that Jessica hit him in the head with a beer bottle. And the Gus left um, and changed her entry in the glossary to be less less flattering. So, uh, so the entire glossary, again, is not um, – unbiased, completely unbiased, because it is written by the point of view of the Gus. Um, now, what's interesting is, uh, as if you click on, like, for example, um, you can click any of these links and jump to a different part of the glossary. Uh, if you click on uh, the Malvern Girls, I believe, you will eventually get um, – uh, a, like, well, hold on. before I say that, let me say this, that right below Jessica's entry, because it's alphabetically, uh, one of the next entries just a little bit down says, uh, and this is an entry in the glossary. It says, I am an ancient olive tree. <laughs> That's a glossary entry. And it says the definition is this mysterious phrase is stenciled in large letters on the back of one of she jackets. Who's she Well, 
Fortunately, her name is <laughs> a clickable link. And so we can click on She-Ra's entry and be led to find out who She-Ra is and who was she friends with and how did she end up at Big Fun. And there will be a million clickable links in her entry uh, as well. So it kind of leads me to this interesting thing of what is the best way to read the Big Fun glossary? Um if you read it from beginning to end, which is I've tried to do, it makes no sense because uh, you will uh, eventually run on stories, run up or run into stories that contain characters that you haven't met yet because alphabetically they're later in the glossary. So when it, you know, if you if you jump in and you read the story uh, about uh, the end of the world party, it's going to have a bunch of people that you haven't met yet. So that doesn't really work, but. Um, if you just start clicking on the links, there is a almost a, a FOMO uh, fear missing out feeling that you're not getting all the entries. I think you can click enough links and not see everything. You may have to just jump to a different part of the glossary and start reading there. Um, in a way, well, and and I should say that some of the entries are completely dead ends. Uh, you can read, it may take you to an entry that has no HTML links and then there's nothing to click on. Of course, you're looking at an entire list of words and you could scroll up or down and jump to somewhere else in the glossary and, and start reading there. Uh, I don't know why I never thought of this before, but in a way it's like a very odd choose your own adventure website. Um, you know, these, these entries, uh, you you almost the more time you spend in the in the big fun glossary, the more you begin to feel like that you know these people, or at least I did. Um, again, I have to think back of why why did the big fun glossary um, make such an impression on me when I when I first saw it. Uh, and again, you have to keep in mind that all the people in the Big Fun Glossary are all real people. These are their real names and their real stories. So when Jessica hits the Gus in the head with a beer bottle, it's something we can imagine happening because we know, uh, you know, these characters from reading. I mean, they're not characters. We we know these people or we feel like we know these people because we've read all these entries. And we also know that they're all heavily drinking Robitussin <laughs> and drinking wine to help it go down. So, uh, so it, it it's, um, it's like you're almost, uh, through the Gus's eyes, you are peeking in through the window of big fun. You're peeking in on this, almost a social experiment. What happens when you get a bunch of people, like the real world, what happens when you get people to move into the house and live together, except for there are no TV cameras and there are no rules. There's nobody there to say you got to turn the lights off at midnight or you have to turn the music off or you have to stop drinking all the cough syrup. <laughs> There's nobody in charge of Big Fun except for the people at Big Fun. And as the story goes on, you will find out that the people at Big Fun are also not in charge of what's happening at Big Fun. Now, 
the length of these entries varies greatly. Some of the entries are only a single line long, maybe one or two sentences. And the entries all look small because, again, this website is frozen in time. And so I think the entire thing is like 10-point font. Uh, so the the words are, are, are relatively small compared to what we would normally see on a website today. But on the front page of the Big Fun Glossary, there are some links to kind of get you oriented. There's an introduction to the glossary. There's a beginning. There's an epilogue, what happens after Big Fun. But on that same page, there are 15 to 20 different stories. And these stories are quite long in relative comparison to the length of the entries. On my computer screen, uh, they are a page and a half to two pages in length. Uh, there was one that I read uh, about, uh, it's called Tussin and a Weird Social Mix. And it's about these people that normally would not, uh, you know, I think the, the anarchist kid is there and, and some other people are there and the Gus is there. And um, uh, at one point, one of them makes a joke about uh, being a Mormon and the Gus tells them that he's Mormon even though he's not. And then it's all about how they apologize and he leaves and then he listens to their conversation through the air vent. Um, and so these are not, uh, you know, if you were, if you were writing stories, I think you would write better stories. Um, and, and I don't mean, I don't mean grammatically, but what I mean is when we write fiction, uh, we have these layers and we have character arcs and we have, uh, things that people expect in fiction that don't always normally happen in real life. Fiction, uh, we use all these tools to put together a story, you know, uh, like I said, a, an arc of, of character change or plot points, things like that, where this is more uh, capturing things that happen. So, um, you know, the the kid who gets arrested, he gets pulled over, um, and, and he's driving the only car that works at <laughs> big fun. And he is caught with massive amounts of LSD in the car and, and is arrested. Um, you know, if this were a movie, he might plan a, a jailbreak escape or he might, you know, or the, the people from big fun might figure out a way to rally together and, and, and bust him out of jail. But, but in the reality, mm, I'll just let you read the big fun glossary entry on that one. So in 1996, the same year that the Big Fun Glossary went online, I moved to Spokane, Washington, uh, and I was working in an office that had a, a permanent, uh, and I would call it permanent, internet connection, meaning when I was at home and wanted to use the internet, I had to dial up to a local ISP and use dial-up modem speeds. But at work, I had um, uh, you know, a permanent internet connection and it was really fast. And so, uh, I spent a lot of my time surfing the web at work. Uh, the internet was new and it was exciting. And it was during this time that I discovered the big fun glossary. Uh, and this is a time that I had moved 1800 miles away from my home, uh, from the place I grew up, from all my friends, all my family, uh, for a month. Uh, Susan had not even moved up there. She was stayed behind in Oklahoma to sell our house. So I spent the first month in Spokane, Washington, completely by myself. 
And then uh, Susan did did you know join me a month later, and we were there for a year and a half. But it was a year and a half where I didn't see my friends, I didn't see uh, my parents. My my mom came to visit one time. My dad came twice. He helped us move up there, and he helped us move home. Uh, so it's not like we never saw anybody. Uh, but by and large, we were on our own, and so we spent a lot of time. Obviously, we I've did the episode of Intune Magazine. We spent a lot of time hanging out at clubs and seeing bands. Um, but I spent a lot of time on the internet, and this was the time that I discovered the Big Fun Glossary. And I think one of the reasons why it made such a huge impact on me is because this was the first website I remember that used HTML in a new way to tell a story in a, a new way that was not possible uh, in print. So if you if you were to get a book, and I'll talk about this in a minute, but if you were to get a book, uh, you know, even like a choose your own adventure is kind of clunky, right? You know, if you want to do this, turn to this page. If you want to do this, turn to that page. But you can't read a glossary where there are ten. 10 things to jump to in every paragraph. It just doesn't work on paper, you know? So HTML was this new, um, this new medium. And this was a new, a new story, but, but it presented in a way that was not possible to experience it in the same way on paper. And most of the websites that I had seen up until that point, and again, I'm disregarding, you know, having MIDI playing in the background or some animated background of a little, you know, the little devil guy dancing or something like that. Like, like that stuff, I mean, because that's not part of the story, right? That if you're telling a story in your website, the music was just, um, you know, incidental, like people just add it because you could add it. But for the most part, websites at that point were just dead paper material being transferred to an, a new medium. You know, you would go to a website and someone would say, here's my my fan fiction about Star Wars. And you clicked on it and it would just be this, you know, page after page of of text, black text on a white background that you would read just like you were reading a normal book. You know, it wasn't something that was taking advantage of what HTML could do. And the big fun glossary was the first website I remember seeing that that was um, you know not like a major not not Yahoo or Alta Vista that was doing so, but an actual private website that was leveraging HTML to tell a story in a completely new way. It was something I had never seen before, and so I think that's why um, part of part of why it made such a big influence on me. And the other part is. Um, because you know that they're real people. So you can read the wizard of Oz and say, Oh, what a great story. Dorothy goes to this magical land and this and that, but, but that doesn't happen in real life. In real life, you don't, you know, get whisked away by a tornado and end up in, in, in the land of munchkins. Right. But the story of big fun is real. They're real people. They really did this. They really moved into this house. And so, it makes it easier to imagine yourself, um, you know, to imagine what this must have been like. Uh, again, we get to view it through the Gus's point of view. 
and and so we kind of become the Gus. We become these people that are visiting Big Fun and learning all these people's names for the first time and, and reading about these stories and these crazy events. And I struggled for a long time to determine – like when I would send someone the link, I always wanted to say, here's the best way to experience the Big Fun glossary. And it would be difficult to say because I don't think the right way is to read it from beginning to end. I don't know that clicking, just picking a random link and starting is the right way uh, to read it. And so there's two things. Number one is I don't know that there is a right way to read the Big Fun Glossary. I think everybody's going to have their own approach to experiencing this website. But the other thing is... I don't think any two people will have the same experience looking at the Big Fun Glossary. Uh, I mean, you're never going to go through the links in the same order that someone else went through the links in. Um, In any paragraph that has 10 hyperlinks, not everybody is going to click on the first one. Not everybody's going to click on the middle one, you know, and depending on those links, like do you click on a link and read another entry and then click back to go back to finish the entry you were leading? Or do you just click and then go to another click and click? It's fascinating to me because there are thousands of links in the glossary that link to other things in the glossary. And so, yeah, it's a unique experience for everybody um, that, that dives in to read about these people, to read about what happened. How did it begin? What was it like in the middle and and how did it fall apart? Uh, at any given time, there could be people that are uh, have formed an alliance, people that are couples. A couple entries later, those people may hate each other. <laughs> there may be new characters at a party. There may be people that all of a sudden you've realized are not there. It's, it's difficult to wrap your head around the entire uh, glossary. <laughs> the entire experience. Um, it's a strange, it's a strange website. It's a strange glossary and, and it must've been, uh, a, a truly, um, it must've been an experience to have been there. So there's one other thing on the big fun glossary website that I have not mentioned. And that is the GPS coordinates of big fun. Now, I don't go, I don't live anywhere near Virginia, and uh, I've only driven through Virginia a few times, and the times that I have driven through have not been near where Big Fun is. But many years ago, I had a training class in Philadelphia, and uh, I ended up driving all the way from Oklahoma to Philadelphia, and I had two addresses that I wanted to visit. And the first is one that I've wrote a blog post about, um, but it was visiting Bam Margera's house. (laughs) Now I knew Bam Margera uh, lived in and around Westchester because I had watched uh, his early skate videos and I had watched Jackass and I knew uh, that he lived in Westchester. And in about five minutes of Googling, you could come up with Bam Margera's uh, home address. 
And this was when uh, Bam was doing his his TV show where he was filming everything at his house that was on MTV. I knew there was a skateboard ramp in the backyard. Um, so I didn't know what I would find, but I just wanted to drive by and see if I could find it. And what I found was if you go far enough out of town, uh, you'll find a big property that is surrounded by a privacy fence. It goes all the way around. And in the driveway, uh, you can pull into the driveway and there's a keypad uh, that you, if you punch in a thing, you can probably get the gate to open. I didn't know the keypad. And there's a, a button where uh, you can uh, talk to someone on the inside. And I did not do that because my intention was not to, to bother Bam Margera. But uh, while I was there, there were people in the backyard. I had my window down. I could hear people skateboarding and having a good time. And so um, so that was an interesting experience. But the other address, uh, I don't think I had the actual address at the time, but I had these GPS coordinates uh, for big fun. And, uh, I thought even at the time, I thought that it was, uh, kind of weird because I, I, um, I don't know why, but I, I had felt this connection to big fun. Like I had, I had read so many of these stories, um, and in full disclosure, I had emailed the Gus and we'd had, uh, exchanged a couple of, uh, emails. Um, and one of the things he had told me at the time was that there was a book called the big fun, uh, glossary, big fun glossary, the book. Um, and, uh, I was a bit disappointed in the book because the book is literally a printout of the website. And, uh, so when you get the book, when you read the entries, all of the entries that were clickable on the website are underlined. So you feel like you should be able to click them, but of course it's paper. So you can't, and uh, you can flip around in the pages, but it just doesn't work. The The genius of it is uh, was converting it to HTML with internal links. So um, I was glad to have bought it, and I still own the book, and it sits on my shelf. Um, and uh, But I've never, ever, ever pulled it back out because the website is still up. Uh, but I, I did buy that and, um, and I've emailed, uh, the Gus a few times and the Gus, uh, as you might imagine is the guy who put together the glossary is also a blogger and he had a website called the musings of the Gus. And then he has uh, a new blog and he blogs every single day and every now and then, uh, like I did right before this show, I go and, and read the last five or 10 of his blog entries. I don't, I don't follow it every day, but, uh, um, but he's still blogging and he still writes about his life and, um, and, uh, his, his wife and, uh, all these things that, that he's up to. And, uh, so he, he's still, you know, around and I've, I've looked at these other people's names. I've Googled, uh, you know, Jessica's name and, and, uh, Sarah's name and, and you can find interviews with them and, and you could find them on Facebook and I've never friended them because I think that's a weird, creepy thing to do. But, uh, but you could see them online and they're still posting stuff and, and, um, and they've, they've gone on with their lives, you know? And so that's why I don't, I try not to bother these people. I don't bother these people, um, because they didn't ask to be in the glossary. You know, they were just kind of sucked in by the the writings of the Gus and the, and the big fun glossary. And this turned into this website that somehow has remained online and unchanged since 1996. So anyway, having read the glossary and obsessed with the glossary, 
um, and spent so much time going through and reading every entry. Um, I felt like I needed to see big fun. And so with those GPS coordinates, I left Philadelphia and drove, uh, uh, out way out of my way. Um, I mean, when I say out of my way, like hours out of my way, um, following my GPS until I got to the coordinates of big fun. Now you, big fun is a, a, a private farmhouse. Uh, and there's a, a private driveway that goes up that's surrounded by trees. And I, I didn't feel like I should really go up there, but from the main road that's nearby, you could see, uh, the, the farmhouse. And I think if I remember, I think it's a different view than what, uh, appears on the website. There, there are a couple of pictures of big fun, the fr- you know, facing the front of it on the website or right, in the glossary. And I think that, um, the view that I had was, was from a different angle, but for some reason, um, and now I feel like, uh, Richard, uh, Dreyfus in close encounters <laughs> where he's carving the mountain out of mashed potatoes. And this means something, you know, and, and he just has to go to devil's tower and he has to see it in real life for himself, you know? And there was something about the big fun house after having read all these stories and, and gone through the glossary and clicked all these links and, and, and learned about the lives of all these people that I just had to see the big fun house. And so I got there and I sat outside and I'm trying to think, I mean, this probably would have been mid, let's say it was 2006. And the Big Fun Glossary was published in 1996, so probably 10 years after. And the house did not look like what I was expecting for some reason. Like I was imagining, I don't know, I mean, I knew the people weren't going to be there, but it was this weird feeling of like I was I was looking at something in the past, you know, like... I'd read all these stories. I'd read about the cars that were there. I'd read about the parties that were outside and none, there was no, uh, there was nothing, nothing of that remained. Um, it was almost like, like I had come too late, you know, like I was out of time. Like I had, had come and I was just looking at an empty shell where these stories had happened. Like in, you know, inside years ago, um, it's uh, maybe it's, it's the same feeling as visiting an old battlefield and you go there and you can just feel that something has happened there, but it's not happening now. There's no, re- there's no, uh, you know, remains of, of those events having taken place. And that's what visiting big fun was like, uh, for me. Now, I don't know if the, if the house is still there, if it is, uh, I can't imagine that it's still there or if it is, surely it's been renovated um, because I, I don't remember it being in great condition when I saw it. And, and it was barely livable when the occupants moved out of Big Fun. Uh, best I could tell, the, the whole Big Fun experience lasted somewhere around a year. I think they moved into Big Fun sometime in 1995, and they moved out. The last people moved out in the summer of 1996. So so it certainly wasn't uh, you know a, a long thing. But sometimes, uh, you know, especially when you're that age, 
um, you know, I lived in a house for, for six months uh, or for, I lived in an apartment for a year and it seemed like a lifetime. Like when I think back to all the things that we did, all the stories, all the parties, all the everything, it seems like it was, you know, a decade, but it was just a year lease, you know? So it, it certainly seems like they got a lot of living and <laughs> had big fun um, during that year. But uh, I'll just never forget that feeling of, of parking, you know, at the end of the driveway and looking up at big fun and just knowing that, um, that I was in the same place where those things had happened, but I wasn't at the same time that those things had happened. So, uh, if you want to take a dive, um, get yourself a glass of water, if you're brave, grab some Robitussin. No, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. Um, and you can go to asecular.com. That is the letter A. It's the word A-S-E-C-U-L-A-R, asecular.com forward slash big fun. I will add that link to the show notes, uh, but that will get you to the big fun glossary. And uh, I hope you've got some free times on your hand because it is a rabbit hole that you could get lost in for a long time. That wraps up another episode of You Don't Know Flack. If you have feedback about this or any episode of the show, you can always email me directly at Rob O'Hara at robohara.com. Join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash robcasts. Follow me on Twitter at Commodore. Come join the chat over on the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server or leave a message on the podcast hotline at 405-486-YDKF. If you'd like to support my shows, visit my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. All my patrons get access to behind-the-scenes blog posts, weekly videos, access to the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server, and other additional perks. To find out more, visit my page. Again, that is patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. You Don't Know Flack is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and the RSS feed, which you can find at podcast.robohara.com. To hear more podcasts from me, visit that same link for links and information about all of my shows. Congratulations. If you made it this far, you've had some big fun and know a little bit more about Flack. We'll see you here next time.